Thanks for listening to the podcast of First Alliance Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For more information about our church or to watch a video recording of today's message, visit us online at facws.org. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to keep it interesting, kids. So if you've already done your activity packet, if you don't want to do it, we're going we're gonna to excite you today. We've got a story to tell. And it's a story about a kid getting lost. Have you ever had that moment when that tightness hits you when you were missing somebody? You can feel it in the pit of your belly. I remember I, I was at the mall and I said, Mom, I'm going to go over here. And I was, I don't know, maybe 13, 14, and 15. She said, sure, go over there. And in 30 minutes, set your clock, 30 minutes, we'll meet back at the coffee shop. Well, I didn't actually know where the coffee shop was. And so I, I went to do my thing for 30 minutes, and I came back, and I was wandering the food court just like, like a crazy person and circling the, the food court round and round and round and round, looking for my mother. You started to get that red tint in your eyes and the tightness in your belly, and I forgot she was at Gloria Jeans, which is down at the entrance to the food court. So I had passed by it 75 times, never went in, never went in to find her, couldn't find her, and finally I saw her standing there, sipping her coffee, wondering why I was just almost in tears when I went up to her. Losing somebody is difficult. You know, when you're in the mall and you can't find your kid. My brother did this. I mean, imagine this, guys. Uh, my brother's like eight years old, nine years old. We're going, it's the classic story. We're going on a camping trip with out-of-town family, multiple cars involved. We all stop to eat at the restaurant. We leave the restaurant. We drive four hours away to the campsite. We get out, and we go, where's Brendan? Well, what do you mean, where's Brendan? I thought you had Brendan. No, I thought you had Brendan. Well, where's Brendan? Brendan is back at the bar drinking Shirley Temple's. And by the time we get back to him, he's not at all upset because he's had like nine cups of soda, which he's not allowed to have. And it, and it was in the bar where they used to have the little swords that they would poke through the cherries, you know? So they gave him like a whole jar of maraschino cherries, and he had about 20 of these little swords by the time he was done. So instead of being upset that he was left behind, he was kind of pleased that he got to play with these little swords and know he would not share them with his brothers. We had lost Brendan. Well, in this case, it is not the parents who were at fault, but Jesus himself. And there's some nuance to this story. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting. When Jesus would have gone with his parents up into Jerusalem, you're talking about a large contingent of people. You're talking about the aunts and the uncles and the cousins. And, you know, maybe John the Baptist was even with them because he was a relative. And, and you know, you would have had Elizabeth with them. And, and uh, they're going up in to visit the temple and to worship and make sacrifice. Passover, mind you, will play a really important part in the life of Jesus for the rest of his life, won't it? It marks here the beginning, and then in a little while it'll mark the end, when at a Passover meal he tells his disciples that he will not long be with them, for he has a cup that he has to drink. Well, anyway, 
Here's Jesus in the city. And it would have been a bustling city. It would have been Haynes Mall on December 24th. It would have been uh, New York City on New Year's Eve. It would have been people lined up with their bleeding animals. And, because, you know, you got to bring something to sacrifice. And it would have been people trying to find a place to have a meal. You'll remember later on when Jesus goes into town to find a Passover meal. He has to find an upper room for his, he and his disciples to gather. It would have been a special food being prepared because you had to make the unleavened bread to celebrate when God had taken his people out from Egypt. It was a big moment. It was their Christmas, their big season, their Easter. Lots of people, very easy to get lost in a crowd. And at 12, think about 12. You're ready to be a teenager, but you're not yet. Tweendom is hard, isn't it, Rory? <laughs> Sorry. She'll kill me for that one. Because you're ready to be an adult, but you're not yet. You're ready to go do your own thing. I'm tall enough. I'm big enough. I can go do my own thing. Let me go, right? And yet, his parents would have said, no, stay with us. Come on. What are you doing? We're here. This is a really interesting story because we have to engage with the question, was Jesus disobedient when he did this? And the answer is no. Because if you look at the answer that he gives, which we'll come to in a moment, it indicates that what was happening was Jesus was wrestling with and coming to grips with his dual nature of being both God and man. But let's return to the story real quick. So he's lost. Can't find him. How do they know? They went a day's journey or about one-sixth of the trip. It's 65 miles from Jerusalem up to Galilee. They went up probably about 10 miles by foot. They stopped. They're gathered for the evening. Everybody's making fires. And they're going around saying, well, where's Jesus? What do you mean? I thought you had him. I thought he was in your wagon or on your donkey. No, he's not on my donkey. He's on your... Oh, no, I don't have him. Oh, no. So Mary and Joseph have to leave the rest of the family. Remember, they would have all gone together. Six days requires six days of food, six days of tents, six days of animal feed, six days of water. They've got to leave all of that and go back to Jerusalem. So it's already been an extra day. Jesus has been missing two days now. And then they search for him for another three days. You're at five days into this boy being lost. That tightness in your belly that I had after 30 minutes of losing my mother, five days of this. And they would have probably started to assume the worst. But then they found him. Where did they find him? <clears throat> Sitting with the teachers. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And listen to this. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now, the Sanhedrin were the knowers and the writers of the law. And what they would have done was sit down in the temple courts and have an open dialogue about the nature of the law and what different laws meant. The law was a living thing in Jerusalem. It wasn't just having a list of do's and do nots, but it was an ongoing debate amongst the people of Israel. How do we best honor God and how do we fulfill the laws that we see written in the Bible? And so they would sit down together and have an open debate. And from time to time, the public would engage in the debate. 
Kind of like we have our, our Congress or we have our state houses of representatives where people will debate and they'll have hearings and things like that, except it wasn't quite a governmental position. It was more like if you went into a seminary and in the seminary class, you had seminary professors hosting a lecture series and then engaging in questions or having a debate in front of an entire seminary. Imagine going to a seminary and there's a debate going on amongst the most distinguished and learned professors in theology. And all of a sudden, a 12-year-old boy is asking questions during the Q&A, questions that are so smart that they're all shocked at the nature of the questions. Well, that's what happened. It, it, it would be mind-blowing to see today a physics lecture between Nobel Prize laureates and all of a sudden a 12-year-old says, well, hey, what, what about this? Have you thought about this? What? And so here his parents walk in. They didn't find him like, you know, at Disney you lose a child and all of a sudden these um, mouse-decorated people jump out and grab your child and keep them safe and then call you down to the child jail where you pick them up. This is parents walking in to the temple courts and there's Jesus amazing the PhDs and professors of Bible knowledge and theology, and they're all slack-jawed. And gee, could you just imagine the parents walking in and going, what? What? what gee, you're supposed to, I mean, all of the anger and all of the frustration and all of the moment, and, and yet this is what you come upon. What are you thinking as a parent? You're thinking the worst. My child's run away, been abducted, eaten by wolves. Bears have come out of the wilderness like it did in the Old Testament and chewed up my child. Who knows what has happened? And yet you discover sitting in a PhD professor debate about theology and the things of God right in the center of God's own temple court. God's house. Yeah, that would have been a confusing moment, don't you think? It's confusing in Scripture. And so it's no wonder that it says, oh, the only word that they can come up with is, is his parents were amazed. I mean, they weren't just angry. They weren't just upset. They weren't just relieved. They weren't just happy. It was all of those things put together. What? Made no sense. And they say, Jesus, do you not know what you've done to us? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And here's the tension. Because Jesus is God and man, an earthly mother and adopted earthly father, yet his true father is whom? God. And he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, this is an interesting verse. Older translations, the King James Version and the Geneva Bible and some others say, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? Modern translations say, do you not know that I must be in my father's house? You know why there's a disagreement? Because neither the word business nor the word house show up in the Greek. The most accurate or most adherent word-for-word -word translation would say something like, don't you know that I must be about that which is my father's or the stuff of my father? 
So it's not entirely accurate to just say business or house, but being a translation, the translators have to arrive at one or the other, and both of them work fine. Because truly what Jesus is saying is, God is my Father, and I must be about what he is about. This is pretty common in ancient civilizations. Even today, it's not uncommon for a son to inherit the father's business or for a son to inherit the father's estate and the house and take on the responsibility of being the man of the house who cares for everybody in the household. Jesus would have had this obligation naturally according to Jewish custom. And in fact, he did. He would go on to be known as the carpenter and the carpenter's son from Nazareth, the son of Mary and Joseph. But he knew that his real father was the one who dwelled and whose glory filled the temple. Not just a little house in Galilee. And so he was already beginning to take on and fulfill that duality of being God and man. Of being both the one who would be a carpenter and also the one who would be the savior of the world. They did not understand what he said to them, which is natural. I don't know as I would have understood it either. But here's where I want us to really fall in love with Jesus as we wrap up the story. And he went down with them. <laughs> I love Bennett. <laughs> She'll get to this story one day. Because this next line is about her, maybe. It says, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in the wisdom and stature in front of man. Think about this. He's 12. Now, 12 is an interesting year. Again, you're a tween, right? In Jewish custom, uh, uh, not during Jesus' day, but in modern day, which is based on ancient customs, but we have no proof that it happened during Jesus' day, we have what's called the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah. You've heard of this, I'm sure. The bar mitzvah is for boys age 13, and the bat mitzvah is for girls age 12. And bar means boy, and bat means girl, and mitzvah means the law, or the rules, or the commandments. And so what it means to be a bar mitzvah is to be a boy under the commandments, or for the bat mitzvah to be a girl under the commandments. And what that means is that's the age at which you are considered mature enough to take part in following the law. So if you do wrong, it's no longer your parents' fault, but yours. And also to participate in the public worship by reading of the Torah scrolls, if you were a male. At the beginning and the end of every service, the men read some portion of the scriptures. So Jesus was right about of that age where he would have been considered almost just coming into young manhood, coming into the beginning of what it meant to learn how to be a man. And the next time we hear from him, he's 30. How many years is there between 12 and 30? 18 years. For 18 years, the most definite sentence that we know happened is that Jesus was submissive to his parents. 
Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, wow is right. Yeah. Jesus, who was God, who would do no wrong, who had the law written on his heart by the Holy Spirit, who was later on the maker of miracles and the doer of great wonders and the savior of the world, for 18 years, well into his adulthood, was known as being submissive to his parents and then growing in the wisdom and stature before men. That's a savior that I want to follow because he was humble enough to know that what mattered most was honoring his parents through those many days and many years. Why do I unpack this story and where do we go from here? Well, this year, 2020, Vision 2020, sorry, there, I, I did it. Uh, <laughs> I didn't name the year, I'm sorry. One of the goals, and the main goal, if I could express it as your pastor, but one of the goals that the elders have talked about and that we're gonna consider in our upcoming retreat is that each one of us in this church would experience the blessing of seeing someone come to know Jesus savingly. Not just corporately, not just one person here on the stage confessing Christ, but each of us in our personal lives would have the joy of seeing one person, maybe more, but at least one person come to know Jesus savingly this coming year. In order to do that, we must be a people who fall in love with Jesus ourselves. Because you only speak about what you love. You only brag about what is great in your life. If loving Jesus is something you have to wake up and force yourself to do on a daily basis, you're not going to go bragging about that to your friends. If, let me explain this in human examples. If it is so manifestly obvious when you dislike something in your life because you don't talk about it. In the same way, it's manifestly obvious when you have a forced or a strained relationship because you try to hide it. You're not proud of it. I don't brag except on this one moment in my entire life, which is I was visiting somebody in Denver, Colorado, where I worked for a few years. I actually was in D.C., but the headquarters of my organization was in Denver, and I would fly back and forth about twice a year. And I would stay with a family, the CEO of the company. I would stay with her family, and she had young children. And she was relaying this story to me that she was telling her child, Ben is coming to visit. And uh, uh, the young boy said, which Ben? And she said, you know, the Ben that works for us. He's coming to visit and stay with us for a week. And the boy said, oh, yes, the Ben who loves his wife, that one. And she told me that story, and I was like, yes! I got to tell Olivia that one. <laughs> Points. So, honey, can you do the dishes? Because I love you so much. I somehow, and that wasn't intentional, but somehow I would brag on my wife. Or I would share about her. And I don't know why. I don't know what I did. When you love something that much, it just oozes out of you. You can't contain it. 
You can't control it. You can't, you can't stop yourself from being proud of a thing that you're proud of. You certainly can't deny it. I don't fault Joe for wearing Carolina ties, especially this year because I can make fun of him. It's coming, isn't it? You're going to bring it back around. I just hope Duke doesn't lose to them this year. Oh, he's going to come. It's going to be so bad. It's going to be a suit, a face tattoo, everything. Anyway, my point is, is I don't fault that in him because he's a fan of that team. And when you're a fan of something, when you love something, you, you wear it. It's, it's pride. It's okay. I want you to be fans of Jesus that cannot help but ooze your love for our Savior. I love 12-year-old Jesus sitting with the smartest people in his city, debating the things of God with them. And then I love 12 to 30-year-old Jesus as he goes and is submissive to his parents as he grows in wisdom and takes up the role of carpenter. He was not better than you or me. He humbled himself and took on human form. Don't you love that? God did not need to put a hammer to nail, but he did it for over a decade. He didn't have to be blue collar. He didn't have to be cut from the same cloth as you and me. He didn't have to wonder where his next meal would come from. He didn't have to do any of that, but he did because he loved his parents, because he loved his heavenly father, and because it was the right thing to do. Don't you love that? So that when he would go to die on the cross, it could be said of him, he experienced everything that we experienced. Every pain, every stubbed toe, every heartache. He buried his father, and his own mother would watch him die. And he would see her anguish. Everything that we can possibly experience in life, he knew he knew. He even knew what it was to be a political refugee. He knew what it was to be a political prisoner for speaking the truth. He knew what it was to die at the hands of foreign occupants who were in the wrong and were oppressing God's people. When we pray for those who are oppressed in other countries because of their clinging to Jesus Christ, for our brothers and sisters in China and in India and in Russia and all over the globe, Jesus knew what they suffered and he is there with them in this moment, even as we pray for them from afar. He suffered as they suffer. I love that Jesus. I love that this story is in his word because it shows us that there's a complexity to his experience that we don't fully understand. God and man together in one. And even his parents couldn't totally wrestle with the thing and understand it. Where were you, Jesus? You drove your father and I crazy. We're worried about you. I'm in my father's house. I'm doing his business. How can you be upset? Mom is the undertone there. I'm doing exactly what I was born to do. But then he humbled himself and went with them for 18 more years. I love that, Jesus. So as you fall in love with Jesus, that's my hope as we go through the rest of Luke. Because we're leaving Jesus the baby and we're getting ready to take on Jesus the man and see who he really was. I ask you, would you so fall in love with Jesus that it oozes out of you and that other people see it? 
and you speak it. And they want it. And as they want it, you see them pray to love and know and receive Jesus in their lives as well. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, I end with this thought. We read Psalm 84. You can read in Psalm 27. You can read all over in Scripture about how beautiful the Father's house is. And Jesus will go on to say, In my Father's house are many rooms. And when he goes into the temple, he sees people trading money, and he says, How dare you defile my Father's house? Jesus loved his Father's house. He wanted to be there. He wanted to worship at the gates. He wanted to learn and be a part of all the learned people. And now... Jesus' house is here. 1 Corinthians 6 says, For you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is not simply waiting for you to accept him in to lead your life and fill you. He desires it more than anything else for you to be the temple where he resides where he can work through you to worship, where he can work in you to transform the world into his image and likeness, where he can change you from the inside out. And so if we believe that we are Christian, we must believe that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if we believe that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we need to open our hearts daily to see where he would lead us. That's when the love for Jesus begins to seep out. That's when the world begins to see it. When you would enter into Jerusalem as a 12-year-old boy, it'd be like coming to Winston-Salem, and there's that one white-domed tower in Winston-Salem. You guys have all seen it as you're entering in on Business 40. There's this one white-domed tower. Unmistakable. Or prior to when uh, they were taken down in 2001, if you would enter into New York, you could always see the twin towers of the World Trade Center, the tallest objects. When you'd go into Jerusalem, you knew the whole point of the city was the temple because it was on the Temple Mount, and that's where the worship of God was. If we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, where God himself resides and lives and moves, then it ought to be obvious that's the only point that I'm making. It was obvious when you entered Jerusalem. Is it obvious in your life that Jesus lives in you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you because you are so lovable. But you're not lovable in the sense that the world thinks of lovable. In fact, you tell us in your word that you were not the sight to look at. You weren't the cutest baby one would imagine. You certainly weren't the son that was totally pliable in all things. Here you are giving your parents a heart attack. God, not out of disobedience, but out of obedience and love for your father and your father's house. But God, we love you, Lord Jesus, because you are holy and perfect. A perfect man and perfect God come together into one. 
We love you because you took those perfections all the way to the cross for us. We love you because, as your word says, because you first loved us. Lord, I thank you that you were about the Father's business and not your own, that you had the humility to obey your earthly parents and not just do whatever you wanted to do. Would you shape us into people who are obedient to our heavenly parents and our earthly parents alike, honoring our father and mother and also honoring our heavenly father in all that we do. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand for our benediction today? In 2 John, we read this. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son who will give it to us in all truth and love. Have a blessed week and a happy new year. And I will see you again in 2020.